Welcome to ELT in Chile, a podcast about teaching English in Chile. I'm Daniel Gwim. And I'm Jose Luis Poblete. And on this podcast, we share our knowledge and experience related to teaching English in Chile and now teaching online. In this episode, we're going to talk about teaching English as a native speaker and as a non-native speaker. This is a huge topic and there's really a lot to unpack about it. I don't think it's as cut and dry as it appears to be on the surface, so we're going to go ahead and explore it. First, we're going to talk about how native speakers are defined, as well as some changes that have happened over the years. After that, we're going to explore some statements that everyone can probably agree on. Last but not least, we're going to talk about what institutions and individuals can do when encountering issues related to this complex topic. And before we get into the main topic, at the time of recording this episode, we're still in quarantine in Santiago. It has been over four months now, and motivation to work has been lagging and as time has dragged on. Daniel actually found a great tool that has helped us uh, with getting work done. So can you tell us about it, Daniel? Sure, yeah. I actually heard about it on another podcast, and it's called Focusmate. It's a quite simple concept that creates a virtual co-working space with you and another person. You create a very simple profile and agree to community standards, and after that, you can book 50-minute sessions when you would like to get work done. What it does is it pairs you up with another person that wants to get work done at the same time. You are connected to each other through audio and video, and at the start of the session, you greet each other and share what you would like to accomplish in the 50-minute period. You then work at the same time as the other person while staying on camera, And at the end of the session, you tell the other person how you did. So, Jose Luis, can you tell me about your first experience using Focusmate? Of course, Daniel. After you mentioned it to me, I decided to check it out and try it myself. So I created an account and I booked a session to work on the podcast the following morning. So I logged in Focusmate and I started the session to greet my partner. And guess who I saw? I saw Daniel Wim. <laughs> so we had booked a session at the same time without knowing. And to comply with the rules, we greeted each other and described what we were going to do uh, for 15 minutes. So we both turned off our microphones, and um, but our cameras were on. And at the end of the session, we described what we worked on, and it really helped me focus on, on my work, so I would really recommend it. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty cool how that worked out. Um, and no, anyone that's thinking we did not play that on purpose. So I've been using this for about a week and a half now and knowing that I can hop on at any time and get paired up with someone and having that accountability available 24-7 is so nice. When you sign up, they give you three sessions for free per week. And if you'd like unlimited sessions, it's just $5 a month. So I think the price is very, very affordable. I think it's very, very reasonable. If you would like to check it out, the website is www.focusmate.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. So for the first parts of the podcast, we think it's important to define what a native speaker is. We needed to do some research on the definition of native speaker versus non-native speakers. And let me tell you, it was very hard to find a cut and dry definition of those terms. And actually, that's the idea of this episode, to dissect these terms, to try to shed some light on this never-ending discussion. So let's say in this podcast, we're going to be using Davis 2004 definition. And for him, age is a key factor to be considered a native speaker of a language. Davis states that the key concepts of nativeness are as follows. Number one, childhood acquisition of the language. Number two, comprehension and production of idiomatic forms of the language. Number three, understanding regional and social variations within the language. And number four, Competent production and comprehension of fluent, spontaneous discourse. 
Now, if we look at the concept described by Davis, for example, comprehension and production of idiomatic forms of the language, I think this is true in every language variety, and this is one of the most challenging ones for learners, you know. Many books have been written on idiomatic expressions, but the main difficulty is to choose when to use them and how to use them appropriately, and also, of course, to understand them. However, many idiomatic expressions are only used in specific countries or areas. This is like something that a friend of mine, Charles McGowan, who's, who's from England, told me. For example, I was bloody knackered. I just wanted to go home and watch the telly, which I'm mainly British, of course. So, Daniel, we could argue that the second concept is true. We would have to include in their own language variety to make it more accurate. What do you think, Daniel? Yeah, I agree with you. I would probably never say anything like that as a person from the United States, you know, bloody knackered. It just isn't in my vocabulary. Um, and I feel like this is also on the border of slang, and that really depends on the region the speaker's from. I wouldn't necessarily even understand people using idiomatic expressions or slang from other English-speaking countries. You know, somebody talking from Australia and using slang, I probably won't understand what they mean. Yeah, I think that's true. And this can be true in the language you grew up uh, speaking. If you go to another country that, that speaks the same language, and it will take a while for you to understand regional differences. This has happened to me when I've traveled to other Spanish-speaking countries and also to other English-speaking countries, you know? And has this happened to you, Daniel? Um, this hasn't happened to me too often when I've traveled to other English-speaking countries, but I do notice it if I travel to other Spanish-speaking countries. So the idioms I learned about in Spanish when I studied in Spain, aren't necessarily used here in Chile. So I feel like every Spanish-speaking country has their own idioms and slang that people need to learn. And I remember being fond of the expression beber como una esponja when I was living in Spain. For people that don't know Spanish, that means to drink like a sponge. But here in Chile, people tend to say phrases like estar arriba de la pelota o estar curado more often. So that meaning being on the ball which has a completely different meaning in English. And then estar curado is another way of just saying that you're drunk. Yeah, and that's that's right. And so that's why I don't think I really agree with the point of understanding regional and social variations within the language, because that would be simplifying language variation too much, you know? And it's way more complicated, uh, especially understanding regional differences, because, you know, that, that can change uh, from region to region, even from town to town. So it would be really just difficult to say, understanding regional and all of them because that's not true. Uh, and the last concept that Davis describes is competent production and comprehension of fluent spontaneous discourse. And I think this point can be considered to be true. And that's why there are proficiency tests. And actually, if you pass a test, your English is certified to be at C1 or C2 level, you know, the highest score. How is this a problem for non-native speakers to get a job as a teacher? I'm not saying that native speakers and non-native speakers are the same. Of course, there are differences and similarities, and we'll be discussing them today. So far, the most tangible difference between a native and a non-native speaker is childhood acquisition. For example, one of the first English teachers I had when I was really young, a couple of years ago, had spent more than 20 years living in the US, and he had obtained his teaching degree there, and his English was excellent. But since his name was Chilean, he had many problems finding a job. What do you think, Daniel? I've seen the same thing happen. Unfortunately, I feel like people in Chile will look at things like a person's physical appearance and a name when they when considering them for a job. It's also common to include photos in your CV, which I think really contributes to discrimination. And I also know someone that had a similar problem. One of my coworkers when I taught English at the Chilean IRS was Chilean, 
but she spent most of her life living in New York. She only moved to Chile after completing high school, and she studied to be an English teacher. Just because of her last name and having darker skin, I feel like she had a much more difficult time finding work than if she had had a different sounding last name and lighter skin. And I think that's the main reason why we decided to talk about this topic in this episode, because I feel that most of the academic research on this area discusses native speakers and non-native speakers based on generalizations, which may or may not be true, and more research is needed to discuss this topic in a deeper way. So let's start by contextualizing what happens in Chile. The official language is Spanish, so English is taught as a foreign language in a monolingual context, and English is not normally used in daily conversation. However, some of the contexts I can think of where people speak English can be, you know, at work sometimes, or at school if it's a bilingual school, or also at home. Can you think of any other context, Daniel? Well, I also think about social situations when people are interacting online. If people want to play video games in an online or multiplayer format, it seems that the default language is English. And I've actually met people that have amazing levels of English, which they've acquired simply by watching television and movies in English and also playing video games all in English. Well, that's true for me as well. I wanted to learn more about English because most of the video games I grew up playing were, were in English. And I remember playing games with a dictionary next to me and a notebook to write down the words I, I was learning at that time. And well, I wanted to present the Chilean context to you because this is what happens in most countries around the world where English is not the first language. So in a study conducted by Mosu and Yurda in 2008, it was found that 80% of English teachers are non-native speakers. And I would say the number is really accurate here in Chile as well. So the same happens with native speakers and non-native speakers of English. Native speakers are outnumbered three to one, and English is now used more as a lingua franca to help people communicate around the world. Those are both excellent statistics to put things into context. 80% of English teachers are non-native speakers, and native speakers are outnumbered three to one in the world population. So like it or not, if you're a native speaker of English, not only native teachers of English, we're outnumbered. Demographics are changing, and I think it's important to acknowledge that reality as a native English-speaking teacher. Yeah, despite that, the myth that native teachers are the best and ideal teachers of English, and also the notion that learners should achieve near-native proficiency, still affects and dominates the English language teaching world nowadays. The good thing is that things are changing, slowly, but that change is happening. I agree. It has taken time, but things are changing bit by bit. What are some of the things that you've seen regarding changes, Jose Luis? One of the most important changes I've seen related to language teaching is the update done to the Common European Framework of Reference, CEFR. So the final version of this companion volume was published in April 2020, and it contains some very important changes. You know, we use this framework to plan our lessons. This is also used for public policy around language teaching and education. And uh, this document is uh, public, so I'm going to share a link to the companion in the show notes. And as you know, the CEFR talks about the different proficiency levels in terms of can-do statements, you know, things that learners can do in different contexts. Traditionally, this framework used the following levels, A1, A2, B1, B2, C1, and C2. But nowadays, they have been expanded to pre-A1, A1, A2, A2+, B1, B1+, B2, C1, and C2. So Daniel, how do you think this is going to affect teaching and planning? Well, this makes me think back to the workshop we both attended by Tom Kittle a few years ago on this very topic. I think it acknowledges the reality that saying that a student is a B1 level is a huge generalization. At the same time, there are four different skills to consider. 
Is a student really a B1 in reading, speaking, listening, and writing? Maybe so, maybe not. In any case, this seems to be a more precise way of determining student proficiency. Absolutely. And I remember when I was, let's say, doing some research on this topic and I checked, let's say, the, the framework, they, they actually said that, you know, this could be compared to climbing a mountain, that some skills overlap, you know, like some of them can be more advanced. Some of them can be, let's say, you can have lower proficiency in listening, but let's say a higher one in, in writing, for example, that, that's also possible. Another area I would like to focus on is level C2, which is, you know, usually considered to be the highest level of language competence. Some authors actually argue that a small number of language learners can achieve an above C2 level. And this C2 level has no relation whatsoever with what is sometimes referred to as the performance of an idealized native speaker or a well-educated native speaker or a near native speaker. Actually, what the CEFR is trying to characterize is the degree of precision, appropriateness, and ease with the language which typifies the speech of those who have been highly successful learners. Also, the same chain has been applied to pronunciation, what they call phonological control. So, uh, in language teaching, the phonological control of an idealized native speaker has traditionally been seen as the target, with accent being uh, the marker of poor phonological control. The focus on accent and on accuracy instead of on intelligibility has been detrimental to the development of the teaching of pronunciation because idealized models that ignore the retention of accent lack consideration for context, social linguistic aspects, and learners' needs. So then, Daniel, intelligibility is a key factor. Also, familiarity and confidence with the target language sounds. So, Daniel, how do you think this change affects the teaching of pronunciation? Now, that's a really good question. I mean, it's important your, that your pronunciation is accurate enough that people can understand you when you're speaking. I remember traveling to Costa Rica with a friend that didn't speak Spanish, and we were supposed to have an English-speaking tour guide so that she would be able to understand everything. I really don't like being critical because I know from personal experience how hard it is to learn another language and how frustrating it is when other people don't understand you when you're speaking in another language. But it was really difficult to enjoy the tour because his pronunciation was so poor that we had to really strain to understand him or I had to translate from Spanish to English for my friend. At the same time, I don't think that trying to sound like a native speaker sends the right message. I think it's important to use correct intonation, word choice, and pronunciation. But your accent, it's part of your identity. It's part of who you are. When I speak Spanish, I don't have the best pronunciation. I have my gringo accent, you know, that gets in the way a little bit, but I can repeat myself or use other words to communicate what I need. I feel like videos that idolize the pronunciation of native speakers can actually send the message to language learners that there's something wrong with the way that they speak. There's something wrong with their accent or there's something wrong with their native language. And that can't be further from the truth. And I think that the key is to find a point in the middle where you feel comfortable and you can make yourself understood. You know, like you said, communication is what let's say, matters. And if you want to work on, a, on your pronunciation, that's great. But if you feel like you can communicate and that's good for you, that's awesome. What's not great, Daniel, is when students are forced to learn or produce a variety just because their teachers think that that accent is the best. Yeah, I agree. I mean, teachers really shouldn't force a particular type of pronunciation on their students. The last thing I would like to mention, Daniel, regarding the CUFR is that they removed the terms native and native speakers from the descriptors which changes the paradigm and the goals of language learning and teaching because achieving, you know, near native proficiency levels is not the goal anymore. I'm going to give an example. So I'm going to take this from the B2 level. 
Uh, here they talk about spoken fluency and the word spoken was uh, removed from, from this descriptor. So now let's say what we can read is uh, can interact with a degree of fluency and spontaneity that makes regular interaction with users of the target language. In the past, users of the target language was referred to as native speakers. So that's, that, that's gone. So now they are using users of the target language. Quite possible without imposing strain on either party. So what do you think, Daniel? Well, this is a great change because I think it acknowledges the reality of communicating in a global workplace in the year 2020. So one of my students has to work with vendors in China to negotiate business deals. And so she needs to be sure that the English she uses is comprehensible to them, both at in-person meetings that happened before the pandemic. And she also needs to be sure that any emails that she writes uses the correct register to communicate her message. In any case, there is also this element of cultural competency, but it's really nice that it's acknowledging that not everyone is a native speaker. You're going to be interacting from people all over the world. In addition to what we've talked about, there are some other issues that don't fit into this native speaker, non-native speaker dichotomy. So how do you classify people that grew up speaking more than one language at home? Would they be considered native speakers of two languages? One reading suggested that people in this situation are actually considered multilingual and therefore they don't fit into the category of native speakers or non-native speakers. Another issue has to do with this idealized image of a native speaker, particularly of English. So people hold an image in their mind of a person with white skin and light hair, but what about a person that is Asian that is a native speaker of English? How about someone that is Latino but whose family never spoke Spanish at home? I think it's fairly obvious to anyone that has been involved in an English language teaching outside of an English-speaking country that native speakers or people that appear to be native speakers have an undue amount of privilege due to some myths that have been perpetuated by the media and language schools. For the second part of the episode, we would like to present six statements that everyone can mostly agree on. From there, we'll look at them in more detail. So, Daniel. All right. So, our first statement is the following. Just because a person is a native speaker of a language doesn't mean that person is proficient in the language or prepared to teach it. International students that want to study in the United States, whose first language isn't English, have to take the TOEFL. Despite that, native speakers do not have to take that same test to go to university. It's assumed that based on a person's grade and SAT scores that they have the academic abilities to do university work, but that isn't always the case. So I'd like to make a comparison about being prepared to teach with being prepared for another profession. Would you let someone perform surgery on you that isn't a qualified surgeon? Well, I realize that's an extreme comparison. When you're dealing with children and university students that are still in their formative years, a teacher needs the training to do the job properly. In addition, if institutes are going to send out teachers that are native speakers, I really believe that those teachers should have qualifications beyond an online TEFL degree and also be prepared to teach whatever class they're assigned. That might be TOEFL, IELTS, FCE. They need to have that background. You can't just send someone in because they're a native speaker. To be fair, we all have to start somewhere. You can't just keep on studying and studying and never start teaching. So we do have to start at one point or another. Absolutely. Now that you mentioned that native speakers don't have to take an English language proficiency test to study in the U.S., for example, well, that depends on visa requirements. That depends on country 
And uh, But for example, if you want to work or live in another English-speaking country like Australia, you have to take the IELTS test, academic or general training, even if you're a native speaker of English or if English is your first language. So I decided to check this course that people obtain in both versions of the test. It's public information and I'm, I can, I'm going to post a link on, uh, in the show notes. So if you want to check that out for yourselves. Uh, so the scores are based on people's first languages. So you have to actually, when you re- register for a test, you have to choose your first language. Let me tell you the, the top three in both tests. Academic. So number one, the highest scores were obtained by number one, German. People who said that German was the first language. The second one is Greek. And the third one is Filipino. When we talk about journal training, let's say the highest score was obtained by Germans. Again, people who speak German, Afrikaans, uh, the language spoken in in South Africa. And the third place is for people who speak English as as their first language. So what would you say about that, Daniel? Does it sound surprising? Well, if we look at it. So people that speak English, they got third place on one of them. On one of the two tests, you know, so there weren't even in third place on the academic test. So the German part doesn't really surprise me that much. So I actually lived in Germany as an an exchange student in high school. And I went to a gymnasium, which is their high school for students planning on going on to study in university. And let me tell you, I was the most popular kid in English class. (laughs) And in class, what we did, they were really high level things. So in one class... We were analyzing a speech made by George Bush, senior, and we also talked about the British colonization of India, and we read plays that were all in English. So I was doing this in English, but they were doing this in a native language. And Germans are known for having an amazing level of fluency in English as well as other languages. As for the Greeks and Afrikaans, I don't really have any exposure or knowledge about their English proficiency. I was in the Philippines for a short vacation, and there pretty much everyone spoke English. And I know that in their culture, they're very hardworking people. So I can totally see that with people that are Filipino. Yeah, and this shows that even if you're a native speaker of a language, that doesn't mean that you will get the higher score automatically. You will have to study and prepare yourself. And I was talking about Europe. I remember when I studied there, many of my friends were multilingual. They spoke at least two or three languages, all of them. So it was really, you know, like something that was done at school. It was something that prepared you, let's say, for life. So it was normal for them to speak two or three languages. Definitely. All right, moving on. Statement number two. A TEFL certification, CELTA degree, teaching credential, or certificate from a university does not necessarily make a person an excellent teacher. So this is a point I have found to unfortunately also be true. Native speakers can go through an online course or an in-person course doing the bare minimum and get the certification. I've heard of and I've seen some native speakers that are excellent teachers, but I've also seen some that aren't that great. On the flip side, just going through a teacher preparation program or studying to be a teacher doesn't make a person a great teacher either. So I haven't met any native speaking teachers that have studied to be teachers that I would consider to be bad teachers, but I have met some less than excellent non-native teachers that have studied pedagogy. Absolutely, Daniel. And the goal of this episode is to discuss these statements and we've done our research to talk about them. I also think that it's not a good idea to say that non-native speakers are better teachers than native speakers or the other way around. I agree with you when you say that we can meet teachers, native or non-native, who are great teachers, but sadly, the opposite is also true. The idea that teachers are not born but made really resonates with me here. 
It's not only a matter of vocation, but also a matter of preparation. Definitely. All right. So statement number three, TEFL and SALTA courses provide teachers with a minimum to start a teaching career and the context and content of the course really matters. So there are some courses that you can take online that just require you to read articles, watch videos, and take quizzes. I feel like they're geared towards people that are already teachers in other subject areas, but are making a change to teaching English. There are also online courses that are more rigorous that require the submission of lesson plans, writing papers, and other assignments. Other courses might require the teaching of classes that are observed by a mentor teacher as a requirement to pass the course. So I feel that like they're becoming less and less common given the pandemic, but there have also been in-person courses that prepare teachers by teaching them another language as a way of modeling effective teaching methods. That's true, Daniel. You can find teachers who want to learn more about teaching English, you know, both native and non-native. I know people who have taken the, the CELTA course for this, but the problem starts when people who only have a short teaching TEFL course and they start teaching English and competing with people who are more qualified than that. There is no 100-hour course if I want to teach Spanish. For me, there are only one-year courses, you know, here in Chile, and that's, that's what I know. I mean, you cannot, there is no... Spanish teaching course that lasts for 100 hours and that would make me, uh, I don't know, eligible to teach Spanish. Definitely. Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, uh, one of my friends, he studied English pedagogy and he is now getting a master's degree, I believe, through University of Barcelona in order to teach Spanish. And so he's getting a whole master's degree just to be able to do that. And I think that that shows that, you know, his dedication to teaching. I think that there might be some exceptions but when you do have a native teacher that has taken an online TEFL course and that person is hired over a non-native teacher that has studied English pedagogy, I think everyone can agree that that's problematic. So in addition to this about teaching qualifications, teachers really need to be prepared for the teaching context. So are teachers going to be teaching TOEFL or IELTS? If so, they need to be prepared with specific strategies to teach for those exams. Are they going to be teaching young learners? Great. What in their training has prepared them for teaching that specific age group? Absolutely. We all have, in a way, specialized in teaching specific skills and age groups. I wouldn't teach young learners at school because I don't feel prepared for that and I was not trained for that. But I really feel prepared to teach teenagers because that's what I was trained for. And then to teach university, I had to take some other extra courses. And actually, I, I, I got a graduate certification that was a year long. All right. So our next statement, statement number four. The more languages that a teacher speaks and knows, the better prepared he or she is to teach English or any other language. I think this makes sense to anyone with a background in language teaching and learning. Non-native teachers of English that share the same native language as their students have insider knowledge about how the language works and what difficulties their students are likely to encounter. Having said that, that does not mean that native speakers of English can't and don't learn their students' language. While it is not as common as it should be in my opinion, I actually studied to be a Spanish and German teacher. When I came to Chile, I had already mastered Spanish, but I do have to admit that learning Chilean Spanish was a new challenge. Despite that, I was able to use my knowledge of Spanish to anticipate mistakes students would make, and I also saw similarities between Spanish and German that I was able to apply to my teaching with teaching English. Absolutely, and this makes sense because you can put yourself in the position of your own students as language learners. When I studied in Belgium, I took Dutch courses and that really motivated me to improve my teaching and also to reflect on what it feels like to learn a new language, you know, to be a zero beginner and, you know, to, to study at home and also to, to see like um, the way that I had to 
let maybe include new methods in my teaching and also improve. Definitely, definitely. If you're not in that, you know, if you're not in that passenger seat, you know, of being a language learner, it can be very difficult to relate to your students. All right, moving on. Statement number five. You should choose a teacher based on the goals and needs that you have, as well as their qualifications, not based on their first language. So if a student is moving to a particular country, it makes sense for them to study with either someone that can give them specific information related to that country or area. For example, if a student is moving to Australia for work or to study for an extended period, it would make sense for him or her to study with a teacher that is either from Australia or that has lived there for an extended period of time. They would be able to teach about the culture, prepare the student to live or visit different parts of the countries, and they would also have insider knowledge that other teachers probably wouldn't have. As a teacher from the United States, I could also teach that student. I would not be the ideal teacher for that student that I described because I've never been to Australia, I don't really know the culture, and I don't have any insider information. So at this, in this case, whether or not a teacher is a native speaker or a non-native speaker is completely irrelevant. That's true. You can probably find a teacher for every situation. If you want to work or study in another country, you can probably find a teacher who either is from that country, like you said, or has lived or studied there. And that same teacher can help you with your language skills and practical information about the country, like you said, insider knowledge. And that's also very important. Definitely, definitely. I know that um, Chile, at least in the past, I'm not sure if they do now, but they have an agreement uh, with things like working holidays with Australia. And I believe it's relatively easy for people, for Chileans to go to study in university in Australia. You know, so there are probably a lot of English teachers that have gone there, you know, uh, for their studies and things like that. So a Chilean teacher that has lived in Australia would be perfect for a student in that, in that situation. So if we consider another situation... Imagine a student wants to improve their legal English for work. So a teacher that has a legal background or that has also studied law would be ideal. So I don't know how many teachers there are out there that have studied law in addition to English pedagogy, but I'm sure there are some out there. One thing that could work for a teacher that doesn't have a background in law is to have the student explain what concepts mean so that they can be sure to show that they have understood the ideas. The teacher then can provide corrections to grammar, pronunciation, and any other areas that need improvement. So in this case, being a native speaker or non-native speaker is irrelevant, right? Ideally, we find someone that has that background with law and English pedagogy, right? It doesn't matter the native language that they speak. That's a great example, Daniel. All of us have different skills besides teaching, for example, sound addition, cooking, art, constructions, but also some people have other or are getting other degrees at the same time. You know, I know some of my colleagues are getting degrees in IT or in psychology, uh, you know, which can also be useful. And like you said, being a native or non-native speaker is really relevant in this point. Definitely. The sixth and final statement, teachers should be able to communicate with their students in their first language to explain any misunderstandings and also talk about issues related to the class that they can't express in English. So everyone that's listening, I want you to close your eyes and imagine something. Imagine you're in university in the third week of your first semester in a foreign language class. You're supposed to take a test the following class and your teacher has a strict policy that if you don't attend, you cannot make up the test and you will receive a zero. Your parents have been in a terrible car accident and are fighting for their lives. You are not in the mental state to go to class for the next few days, let alone take a test. Imagine you want to tell your professor about the situation and ask if you could work something out. 
but they do not speak your native language. Imagine that this is before the time of Google Translate and no one else in the class has a high enough level to communicate what's going on. What do you do? How do you communicate with that professor? Unfortunately, this has been a reality in Chile. The glorification of native speakers has led to people that do not speak Spanish receiving positions at schools and universities, and these teachers cannot communicate effectively with their students to clarify misunderstandings or answer basic questions. This is something I feel really strongly about. If language schools and universities want to hire native speakers, those teachers need to have at least a basic proficiency to be able to communicate with their students in addition to a solid pedagogical foundation and subject matter competence in the area that they're teaching. I agree with you, Daniel, and I've witnessed that, uh, that situation many times myself. Teachers who cannot communicate with their students in situations like you described, or teachers who have no interest in learning the language because everybody wants to learn their language. For me, it's also a sign of respect that you are at least trying to learn the language to improve your performance as a language teacher. So, considering all these ideas, what should people, institutions do, Daniel? What can we do as teachers? Well, first off, I think we need to recognize that we can't stop people from using their status as native speakers as a way of leveraging their privilege and using it as a strategy to market and get students. And we can't stop institutes from doing that either. What we can do, however, is encourage people to question why they would like a particular type of teacher. We can be honest with ourselves about our teacher expertise and the areas that we know about. And before starting classes with students in areas in which we don't have experience, we can be honest up front. To give you an idea, when I first started teaching IELTS classes in 2015, I charged a lower price to my students while I spent a lot of time learning how to best prepare my students for the test. Now that I've successfully prepared students for it, I feel comfortable charging my regular price. That's true. It's a marketing strategy and that's okay because we cannot stop that from happening. What we can do to level the field is by teaching our students and people who want to learn English or any other, any other language is to ask for this person's qualifications in order to see if this teacher has experience or knows how to actually teach, you know? So in addition to considering any privilege you might have and how you might be using it, pay attention to how you're conducting yourself professionally, both in person and online towards others, and focus on community and collaboration. I've seen countless Facebook posts over the years in various groups criticizing native teachers and assuming that they aren't qualified to teach. There seems to be a rivalry that some people are participating in between native speakers and non-native speakers. And to me, it doesn't really come across as professional, nor is it anything that I want to associate with. Rather than criticizing others, I think it's a much better use of time to help people, to network, see how you can improve your skills, and simply avoid people who drag others down and whose values don't align with yours. And I think this really makes me think about you because I remember how you approached me to start this podcast. And it's just such an, it was such a nice way of us coming together and collaborating. And I feel like I've learned so much about teaching from you. You know, you're just so dedicated and hardworking. And being able to talk about our classes, share our ideas, it's something that's really helped me feel at home here in Chile, as well as improve my teaching. Yeah, I agree with you, Daniel. But it's also hard for people to start collaborating. To do that, I think you need to feel comfortable with your teaching and also with your language skills. Collaboration requires action, Daniel, and also educating yourself on different topics. I don't see you as, uh, as my rival because I know that you're a good teacher and I know many good teachers like you. And that's why I wanted to collaborate. And that's why I really want to collaborate with people. And, you know, when I find 
um, let's say colleagues that we usually work together and, you know, they, they, I, yeah, I, I want to invite them to webinars or they invite me to see something or to write or, you know, and that's a really nice way to just collaborate, you know? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that I've learned in therapy over the years is that you can choose to view the world as a place that is scarce and that there isn't enough to go around and you always have to struggle and you always have to compete with other people, or you can choose to feel safe and secure and you can choose to feel that there's enough for everyone. So looking back, I used to view life from a place of scarcity and not being good enough and there not being enough in the world for me. But now I choose to believe that there is enough of everything for me in the world and for everyone. So I've made the conscious choice to collaborate, to help others. And competing, it really isn't necessary. And another thing to consider is the reality that none of us know everything. We all have gaps of knowledge that we can fill. If you don't speak the language of your students and are monolingual, you can start by learning their language. It will really put yourself in their shoes and help you to become a better teacher. If you don't know much about the culture of English-speaking countries, do what you can to learn about it. This could be something like watching movies and TV shows, although they aren't always accurate portrayals of life in the United States. And this makes me think back to Germany when people asked me if all high schools in the United States are like the movie American Pie. <laughs> and I told them, no, my high school experience wasn't anything like American Pie. You can also go to cultural events. You can get to know teachers from English-speaking countries. And now a lot of organizations are offering online webinars about teaching. And some have even moved their annual conventions online. There are so many ways to learn to keep growing as a teacher. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, actually, I've seen many events that are going to be online this year and next year because they uh, they know that it's going to be really difficult to to travel and just, you know, attend uh, these conferences. So, And also, I think there is always room for improvement. You can take online courses now. I'm finishing an online course myself. Or if you just want to go back to school, you know, to get another another degree, go ahead and do it. Definitely, definitely. And I'd like to share one last idea about this issue. Rather than focusing on being a native speaker or non-native speaker, focus on your competency in different languages. I don't know that this is something that institutes would adopt, but if you could advertise yourself as a private teacher that had competency in three, four, or even five languages, I think that would be very impressive to anyone that is serious about learning a language. And it's not really focusing on what your native language is. It's focusing on the variety of languages that you know. Absolutely. And also you can have your own website uh, where past students can talk about the experiences they have working with you. And I know that's something you do. You know, that's that, that's very important when people talk about, you, you know, word of mouth, you know, if, they, if somebody can recommend a good teacher, they usually, you know, know somebody because they, if they had a good experience. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I do have my website. I haven't blogged in a while. That is going to be a project for later in this year. But yeah, so wrapping everything up, to put everything in a nutshell, there are great teachers that are native speakers. There are great teachers that are non-native speakers. If you're looking for a teacher or responsible for hiring a teacher, there are numerous factors to consider. Other languages that are spoken, their ability to teach effectively, knowledge of the student's culture and language, personality, and their qualifications in relation to the student's goals. It's a complex issue that can't be simply boiled down to the native speaker, non-native speaker dichotomy. We hope that this has been enlightening and we encourage you to connect with other teachers, both native speakers and non-native speakers. If you have any questions or comments, you can write us at 
podcast at eltinchile.com. Again, that's podcast at eltinchile.com. If you need some accountability to get work done, remember to try Focusmate at www.focusmate.com. Thank you to Carlos Sepulveda, Nicolas Roman, and Andres Franz for their hard work producing the podcast and maintaining the website www.eltinchile.com. And thank you to everyone that has been listening from all over the world. I'm José Luis Poblete. And I'm Daniel Gwim. Stay safe, stay kind, and keep, keep on, on teaching. teaching.